couple minutes here. This morning we're going to be continuing the study on the great truths of the Reformation, uh, the recapturing of the gospel. And today we're going to be going through grace alone, through faith alone. Um, and first let's start with prayer. Dear Gracious Father, we come to you and ask that you might grant us grace. That you might open our hearts to receive your word for there is authority in it. It is a lamp unto our feet, and it is a guide unto our path. May we, O oh Lord, see the truth in it and live by it and be comforted because of it, because it all points to Christ, who is the surety of our faith. In his name we pray, amen. In Acts 2, Peter, now first let's go back to Luke 24. Before our Lord ascended, to be with the right hand of the Father, he said, wait in the city, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit. So Peter stands up in Acts 2 and he preaches to the Jews who were at the day of Pentecost and he's preaching Christ and him crucified. And after he, they pre he preaches Christ and him crucified, they come to him and it says that they were convicted of heart. And they said to Peter, what must we do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and be baptized in the Holy Spirit for the saving of your souls. This is probably one of the most important questions that one can ask. What must I do? The response that Peter says is repent. But what does repent mean? Repent means in the Greek metanoia, which means a changing of your mind. And we see this in the prodigal son, where it says he came to himself while he was in the pig pen. It's a changing of mind, but it's more than that. It's a changing that, of mind that turns away from the pigsty, that turns away from your sin to Christ. We see that in the, in the Hebrew word, shub which means to turn around, to turn from something, to turn to Christ. Faith is turning to Christ. Repentance is turning from sin. They both go together. As Thomas Watson said, there are the two wings on which we fly to heaven. Now, the traditional, uh, the traditional definition of faith is knowledge, assent, and trust. What does that mean? First, we have to have a knowledge of the gospel. We have to have a knowledge of Christ. Second, we have to have a knowledge of what he did for us, what he accomplished at the cross, what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. The gospel is outside of us. It is in the person of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. So we are to embrace that and not only know about it, but know that it is a true gospel. It is truth meaning we assent to it as true. But knowledge and assent is not enough. In James, James says that even the demons believe in Christ and shudder at the thought. What did, what did James mean? They had assent. They knew who Christ was. They knew his authority. They knew what he was going, but not for them. 
It wasn't for them. They had no trust. They had no trust in Christ. There was no salvation for them. So trust is the primary essence of faith. This is the tripart definition of knowledge, assent, and trust. Isaiah says, let us reason together. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Through your sins are, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall become like wool. See, it's a reasonable faith. It's not a jump into the darkness. It's a faith that is grounded upon truth, upon reason. So we must have a correct knowledge of what the gospel is, but also a sense that is true. This, these, this definition of faith is, is confessional as well as biblical. It goes back to the Heidelberg Catechism that says true faith is not only a certain knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust, which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sin, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of the merit of Christ. The Westminster Confession says that faith, the principal acts of saving faith, are accepting, resting, and uh, accepting, receiving, and resting upon the Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Those are great definitions. But I really, and I, when I read John Calvin's definition of faith, I think that this is a very good definition of faith, by the way, but faith does not exist in a vacuum. And that's the way John Calvin defines faith. He says, now we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. When we stress that this faith ought to be a certain and secure knowledge, we do not have in mind a certainty without doubt or security without any anxiety. Rather, we affirm that believers have a perpetual struggle with their own lack of faith and are from far from possessing a peaceful conscience, never interrupted by any disturbance. On the other hand, we want to deny that they may fall out of or depart from their conscience, their confidence, budukia, in the divine mercy, no matter how much they may be troubled. You see, doubt and anxiety are the life of a Christian. It's not out of an ordinary. People say doubt is the opposite of faith. Maybe it is. But it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Faith, many of us are like the centurion that says, I believe, help thou my unbelief. You see, our faithfulness does not rest upon our own steadfastness, but rests on God's steadfastness with us. He preserves us by his grace. Grace alone. Martin Luther, in his book, Bondage of the Will, which I think was, uh, and he even actually says that Bondage of the Will was the greatest work that he ever wrote. And Bondage of the Will, he was actually a compilation of letters that he wrote to Erasmus, which was the Roman Catholic humanist, uh, who actually was, not, he was not in favor of the Roman Catholics. He had a lot of things to say about them, but he wasn't truly 
part of the Reformation. He was still not convinced of grace. And so Luther was trying to bring him into the Reformation, and uh, he wrote a book against Luther saying that it wasn't of all of grace. That man still takes part. He does his own part in, in bringing himself to faith. God may do, he did not deny grace. He said, God may do 99% of it, but I still must do my 1%. Luther said, no, no, there's this wide chasm between God and man, and he gives us the bridge all the way across. He doesn't give us a bridge 99%. If he did, we would not even jump that last 1%. We would still be on that bridge. Martin Luther said in that book to Erasmus, he says, Erasmus, you come to me, I thank you that you don't come to me with trifles, purgatory, indulgences. He says, I thank you, Erasmus, that you have hit the vital spot, grace. You see, for Luther, it was a matter of how much do we contribute and how much does God contribute to our salvation. It was not a salvation of God wooing us, but it is a salvation that God gives us, the very faith that we need to come to Christ. It is a gift. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Luther continues. He says, the principle of sola fide, faith alone, is not rightly understood until it is seen as anchored in the broader principle of sola gratia, grace alone. For to rely on oneself for faith is no different than principle of relying on oneself for works. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm putting them together in one study, because you cannot speak of one without the other. Imputation versus infusion. What does that mean? During the Reformation, the biggest debate, and probably the primary reason why we separated from Rome, was how do we receive the righteousness of Christ? Rome said, yeah, we need the righteousness of Christ, but it is infused in us in the sacrament of baptism. Christ is in the baptism and infuses his grace into us, but yet we can lose that. We can lose that grace. The reformers said, no, no, no. It's not infusion. It's by imputation that Christ, in his active and passive obedience, receives our sins and atones for our sins, for the wages of sin is death. And he must die for our sins, but also he must live for our sins because God demands a perfect justice. And he will not compromise himself and so he, Christ, fulfills the law perfectly on our behalf. And that righteousness is imputed to us through faith alone. The psalmist asked, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And Isaiah writes, our righteousness are as filthy rags. If we are clinging to our own righteousness, even though it be a 1% righteousness, we're still doomed. It must be Christ and his works alone. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 3, 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time 
so that he might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. You see, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I wrote this on here, and I want to go through this. There's three gospels, or three justifications. And when we look at the first one, this is what? This is the reformers. This is evangelical faith. This is, this, I got this from John Gerstner, by the way. <laughs> and I was, it's not something I, I invented. I mean, John Gerstner, when he goes through the Westminster Confession, you can watch it on YouTube, by the way. He, he, I, I thought this was great because it gives us a picture of the three. One of them is justification. The other are, they're not really true justification. Okay, so faith equals justification but works. These works are necessary, but they're not meritorious. The ground of our salvation is always Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I bring. Even our works. And as Augustine said, God crowns his own works in us. Quoting from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that he, what, we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that he ordained. Every good work that you do, you do is ordained by God. So who gets the credit? Now the second one here, faith plus works equals justification. Which one is that? I know you know. Roman Catholic. This is legalism. This is legalism. They're saying faith plus works justifies me before a holy God. I must add my works to the works of Christ to be justified. Faith alone is not enough to justify us before a holy God. This third one here is what we call antinomianism. What does that mean? That means anti-law. Anti-law. Faith equals justification. Works are not necessary. They separate justification from sanctification. They separate just faith from works. James says faith without works is what? Dead. So I, th I thought it was a great way that Gerstner pictured the differences in how we view faith and justification. Shortly before his death, J. Grisham Machen, the great stalwart of faith who battled liberalism, wrote a letter or had a letter dictated to his friend John Murray at Westminster one week before his death. In it, he just said, I'm so thankful for the act of obedience of Christ. No hope without it. This is the gospel. It's not just a difference in opinion or a difference conclusion that doesn't really matter. There are other things that we can disagree on. You disagree on the gospel, and, and what does the Apostle Paul say? Anathema. He doesn't mix words. You cannot disagree on the gospel. When Machen was referring to Jesus' act of obedience, he's meaning that Jesus, what, fulfilled the law for us on our behalves. And what he means is that you cannot separate the act of obedience of Christ from the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ is that passive word means in Latin to suffer, and to die, and to pay the penalty our sins. He took the wrath that we deserve on our
our behalf. Machen writes of the act of obedience to Christ, moreover, we should have been back in that probation in the very much the, the less hopeful way than that which Adam was originally placed in it. Everything was in Adam's favor when he was placed in the probation. Speaking of the, the covenant of works in the garden, he had been created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He had been created positively good, yet despite all that, he fell. How much more likely would we all fall, may how certain to fall, if all that Christ had not done for us were merely to remove from us the guilt of the past sin, leaving it to then to our own efforts to win and to reward which God has pronounced upon perfect obedience. You see, wiping away the sin, wiping the slate clean, just brings us back to the garden. And Machen is saying, okay, we can't fulfill the law. If Adam couldn't do it, how are we going to do it? We can't do it. Christ must do it for us. He fulfills the covenant of works for us. And so therefore, we are under the covenant of grace. Not of yourselves. We get this from, what, the famous verse in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. Augustine, of Bishop of Hippo in 354 AD, prayed the prayer. Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. And Pelagius reacted against that. How can God command something that we cannot do? You see, Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin. He did not realize that but because of the fall, we are all dead in our sins. We are in bondage to our sin. Pelagius said that we could, by our own will, do the things of God. A denial of grace, and actually he was uh, branded as a heretic in the early church. Faith is something that we do. God does not believe for us. But Ephesians says that it is the gift of God. There is something that must happen before faith. What enables faith? We call that the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit works the faith into our hearts. He opens our hearts to see Jesus in the gospel. He opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus. He opens our ears to hear the preacher's words of the gospel. To hear the invitation of the shepherd's call, come to me all that are heavy laden and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. It is a bona fide offer to all who may hear it. But it is the Holy Spirit that opens our ears to hear it. I, when I was reading uh, the Bible as a young child, I used to always hear, I, I used to read the King James, where Jesus would say, he who has an ear, let him hear. And I was like, what is, what's he saying? He's saying those who have the ear to hear by the Holy Spirit, to hear the words of God. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says, nor the liberty, liberty or the contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. What does that mean? Wow. 
what they mean is that free will has not been taken away. We're not teaching fatalism when we teach that uh, the sovereignty of God and election. It's, it's the, the, the free will has not been taken away but established. What is the, that means that through secondary causes, God creates faith into the hearts of people. Through the preaching of the word, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of God. And he writes, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How can they believe without a preacher, he says. They must hear the gospel. They must read the gospel. That's why during the Reformation, it was so important to get the word of God into the hands of the laity so they could read it. And, and by that, they might come to faith. Free will. This is probably one of the most controversial doctrines in Christendom. And it goes all the way back, not only to Pelagius, it goes to the Reformation and Martin Luther and Erasmus. It goes to this day where I would say probably the majority of Christians deny they embrace the doctrine of free will. Reformed theology upholds the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. These are the two guardrails of scripture. If you deny one, you fall into what? Hyper-Calvinism. If you so stress the sovereignty of God, you end up being a hyper-Calvinist. Where, where William Carey wanted to go to India to bring the gospel to India, the, the pastor said to him, sit down, young man. If God wants to save India, he'll do it without you or I. That's hyper-Calvinism. On the other hand, you have what we call, I talked about Pelagius, right? Who is denial of the original sin. They're semi-Pelagians. That's his cousin. They embrace grace, but only a grace that takes us so far. Not all the way across. Those are what we call semi-Pelagians. I would say not just Roman Catholics, but the majority evangelicals today are semi-Pelagians. Are they brothers and sisters in Christ? Yeah, because they embrace the gospel. They still believe this. They still believe that. That's what unites us. But when you come to grasp the doctrines of grace, boy, does it humble you. Boy, does it humble you. Because why? Did you believe in Christ because you were smarter than everybody else? That you moved your heart by the inclination of your own will to come to Christ? No. When you go and you pray for your loved ones, you pray for people that are not Christians, you're on your knees praying to a sovereign God to what? Save them. G.I. Packer says on our knees we all pray to a sovereign God. It's when we get up off our knees that we disagree. We pray that they might have a new heart. We see this clearly in, in uh, the scriptures where it says that God, God hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus 4.21, but also that, what? Pharaoh hardened his heart. How can they both be true? How could Pharaoh harden his heart and God harden his heart? 
You see, because of the fall, God did not have to make Pharaoh evil. He was evil. All he had to do was restrain his grace and let Pharaoh just act out who he was, a fallen creature. And God used it. We see it in Exodus 50 when we have the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph? Thrown into the pit, sold off into slavery, goes off to Egypt, becomes prime minister of Egypt. And then in the end, he confronts his brothers. And what does he say to them? He does not. He says, God meant, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To save many people through it. And that points to the cross. Jesus, who was killed by lawless men, sinful men. God saved the world through it. What an awesome God. <laughs> he overcomes evil for good. Jonathan Edwards, when he writes his book on freedom of the will, he says that there, there's a distinction that he makes in that book between what he calls um, a natural liberty and the moral liberty, our moral wills and our natural wills. We have not lost our natural ability to choose, which is saying what the Westminster Confession says. It's not fatalism. But he said, because of the fall, we have lost our moral ability to come to Christ. And in John 3.18, everybody loves to, to quote John 3.16, but he says, that, that light has come into the world but people love the darkness because their works are evil. Why do people not come to Christ? Ever says because they have no desire for Christ. They, they, they only choose what they desire. It's the only the, the, the desire of the heart that will bring you to Christ. That's why in Ezekiel it says that God gives us a new heart. We call that regeneration. And a new spirit he shall give us that we might come to Christ. That is one of the hallmarks of our faith is that it is not of ourselves. It is by the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot understand the things of God until he is born again. Jesus said that you cannot see the kingdom of God lest you be born again. You cannot even see it, least enter it, until you are born again. And he says to Nicodemus, why do you ask these questions? Because he questioned him. How can a person be born again, born twice? He says, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know this? In the Old Testament, it was called circumcision of the heart. And circumcision was the sign and seal that pointed to that circumcision of the heart. In the New Testament, it's no longer circumcision. What is it? Baptism. Baptism points to our union with Christ, points to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
doesn't, it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it points to it. And that's why in Colossians 2, verses 12 and 13, Paul puts those two together, circumcision and baptism, in those verses to point to our same death to Christ. They are the same gospel in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament saints looking forward to Christ. The New Testament saints looking back to the cross. It's one gospel fulfilled in Christ. Now, the fall. How can we say that scripturally we have no moral ability? Was Redwoods right? That we have no moral ability whatsoever to come to Christ of ourselves? In Jeremiah 13, 23, it says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, nor the leopard change his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You see, before the fall, we did not have a sinful nature, or Adam did not have a sinful nature, right? He had what, what uh, Augustine said, pasa bakari, pasa non bakari. He had the ability to sin or not to sin. After the fall, we lost our ability to, to obey God outside of being regenerate, given a new heart. So all we can do is sin. And people, people say, oh, there are so many people that out, they, they do righteous and good, virtuous things. It's external. So did the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were more obedient to the law than probably any, any of us here. They even, they, even, uh, they even tied down to the mint in their gardens. But it was not internal. It was not from the heart In John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can. That's a universal negative. Unless something happens, right? Unless the Father draw him. And they say that word draw just means to woo. No, it doesn't. The same word draw there in the Greek means like a woman that goes and draws water from a well. The woman doesn't stand over and say, here, water, water, come up from the well. She goes and gets it. She drags it. It's the same word drag as they dragged them out of the prison, the jailer. It's not wooing. Jesus also said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you may have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. People react against Calvinism or this doctrine of sexual calling, and they say, oh, I don't believe that because God turns away those who want to come to him. No, you come to him because he draws you. If you want to come to Christ, he's already drawn you, even though you don't know it or not. That's why Arminians can be saved, because they don't even know it, but they have been drawn by the grace of God, even though they don't understand it yet. I was saved, and I didn't believe in this stuff. But boy, oh boy, has it really humbled me. And it is 
strengthen my assurance that I am in the hands of a sovereign God, not in the hands of my autonomous free will. Even God does not have autonomous free will. God cannot deny who he is. God cannot sin. We also, the same way, can deny who we are as creatures of the dust that have fallen. And when Adam fell, we fell. And now we have a sinful nature until we are renewed by the grace of God and regenerated to obey out of love and gratitude for what he has given us in Christ and by the grace of the Holy Spirit. You see, God saves sinners. In a nutshell, what is the saying? God saves sinners. It's not that God saves sinners with our help. In Philippians 1.6, uh, one of my, probably my famous, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible says, I am sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Where is anything in there about you? When Jesus said, Father, in his high priestly prayer, before he's going to the cross, he prays the prayer in John 17, right? He says, I do not pray for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given me, Father. What is he? He's, pray, he's praying for those whom the Father has given them to him. See, there's a, a people that has been, have been given to Christ. This is the covenant of redemption. The whole trinity is about your salvation. God the Father electing before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1. God the Son dying for your sins. Those whom the Father gives him, he redeems. And then God the Holy Spirit applies redemption. John 66, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father draw him. And he draws you by the Holy Spirit who applies that redemption to your souls. I want to end with a prayer. And I was reading this this morning, and I just wanted to share with you. And I did, it's, it's coming from the Valley of Vision, uh, which is a, um, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of uh, Puritan prayers that they put into a book called the Valley of Vision. Um, and actually, I read through the Valley of Vision as a devotional one year in my life. And it's just, it just, it blows you away when you read the words of the Puritans and how they prayed. And I did bring it up to more modern versions that taken away the old English. It says, Oh, love beyond compare, you are good when you give, when you take away, when the sun shines upon me, when the night gathers over me. You have loved me for, before the foundations of the world, and in love did you redeem my soul. You do love me still in spite of my hard heart and gratitude distress. Your goodness have, has been with me, leading me through a twisting wilderness in retreat, helping me to advance when beaten back, making sure my perseverance. Your goodness will be with me all the days of my life. I hoist the sail and draw up the anchor. With you as a blessed captain of my future, as of my, pa as of my past, 
I bless that you have veiled my eyes to the waters ahead. If you have appointed storms or tribulation, you will be with me in them. If I have to pass through the tempest of the persecution and temptation, I will not drown. If I am to die, I will see your face the sooner. If a painful end is to be my lot, grant me grace that my faith fail not. If I am to be cast aside from the service of your love, I can make no stipulation. Only glorify yourself in me, whether in comfort or trial. As a chosen vessel, meet always for your use. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, I have a few minutes here for any questions or comments or anything. Take the apple from Eve, or could have been a different sin? Well, it says you not shall not eat of the apple. So when he ate of it, yeah, he participated in that sin. So he ate of it. And that was, he, for, he actually uh, disobeyed God. So um, are you saying that we would do the same exact thing if we yes. were in that position? Yes, absolutely. Could it have been something else, like further along? Did it have to be that specific um, sin? God didn't command that. Some, anything else. He said, you may eat of all the trees in the garden. Just don't eat of this little one here with an apple on it. Okay. Thank right? you. Mm -hmm. So we can enjoy everything that God has created. Just don't disobey him. I have no idea. Good question. <laughs> mm-hmm. sin able to not sin and then we were we were not able to not sin oh you mean after we're regenerate yeah yeah and, and yeah that's a good way to, to look at it because now christians have been given a new heart um we have the ability to obey god not perfectly i mean we still sin but um a christian obeys god out of a pure heart um jesus in the sermon on the mount says blessed are those who are pure in heart and we have begun to be given a pure heart but but yet we don't rely on that Right? We, we don't rely on our works because that's, that's getting back over here. Um, the ground of our salvation is always Christ and Christ alone. And that's why I, I love the way Pastor, when he, he quoted uh, McChain, uh, look once at yourself and look ten times at Christ. <laughs> Amen. childbirth now that is that an implication that she had already had a child prior to that and the subsequent ones would be she'd have increased pain yeah that's the curse the, the, the two curses of the fall of the fall right the man shall what work right the work of the ground and sweat and the toil of our work and then the woman as she will bear in childbirth pain 
expectation that you had already born a child before that and she would experience greater pain subsequently? Oh, no, I don't no. think so. I don't think so. The scripture doesn't say that, that um, she had born of, of um, um, before then. Abel was not born at that time, I don't believe. All right. I was, I was struck when I read uh, John Owen's Death of Death, how he said that the semi-Pelagian position is really so demeaning to God's character, saying that you have the choice to deny God. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, that, that just really slayed my heart at that moment you know, to see the, the falseness. And I also love our uh, dear departed elder, Woody Woods, who said, all men will be Calvinists in heaven. So yeah, <laughs> I agree. Amen. You know, God, God commands everybody to faith and repentance in Christ. And if you reject Christ, you are guilty of the sin of unbelief. So, that's, and, and he, he commands us to preach the gospel to everyone. We, we don't preach, you know, the whole, the whole premise of the, the, of the book by Ferguson on the whole Christ is against preparationism. We don't put preconditions on preaching the gospel. Have you repented enough? We don't take the place of the Holy Spirit. He preached Christ and him crucified, and it's the Holy Spirit that convicts. So we don't, we don't put preconditions um, on the preaching of the gospel. As Bergen said, we don't look for people with a yellow stripe down their back that they're the elect, and we preach to them and them alone. <laughs> we don't know. The secret things are hidden from us. God does not reveal all things to us. How can the, the finite know the infinite? As Isaiah said, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. May we humble ourselves <laughs> before God. What was the problem with Job? He questioned God. Job, Job, where were you when I spun those stars into heaven? Oh, you give me understanding, Job? I don't, I don't recall you being there, Job. W and we question him because we don't know. But there's purpose because God said all things that work together for good for those that love Christ. And we cling to that. Even in our suffering, we cling to that. Amen? Thank you.